15, what we want to do is, is uh, for the sake of time, because we, we are getting a bit of a late start, um, instead of reading all of it, I'm going to trust that you're familiar enough with the passage. Uh, I, I trust you know it well. Uh, there is a, a, a son who asks for his father, hey, give me all your money. He goes off, spends it with prodigal living, uh, a wasteful living, uh, is feeding pigs, which would have been shameful to the Jewish hearers. And uh, then he returns home. His father uh, adopts him basically again. The older brother is furious at this, uh, and they don't all live happily ever after, right? You remember, there's, there's no ending to the prodigal son story. It ends with the father pleading with the older son to come in with the celebration. And um, every time I, I preach, um, actually, I, I did the prodigal son story at uh, uh, TFCA uh, this last semester. And I always like to, and I steal this from John MacArthur, who I think he is stealing it from someone else. The story really ends with the crucifixion. The older brother picks up a rock and kills his father. Because in the story, that's what Jesus is trying to say. They are critical of Jesus for eating with tax collectors and sinners, which is personified in the younger son. The Pharisees are personified in the older son, who are the ones who end up killing the, the father. Okay, So I trust you're familiar with the story. What I want to do is to show you that Jesus is a really, 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 really good storyteller. And that how Jesus tells a story is not accidental. So this is why you will, I will show you something you've never seen before in the Bible. And my goal is that you fall in love with the Bible all over again. Um, there is a chance you're going to think, I couldn't care less about any of this. Okay? Here's the thing, is when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, he is retelling the story of Jacob. Now, for the last several weeks, months, we have been studying in painful detail the story of Jacob. So if you look at from Genesis 27 to Genesis 35, because 36 is the Esau genealogy, that's the story of Jacob. Jesus takes that full story, he condenses it, and he takes the highlights, and he retells it. But he retells it uh, in a different context with, a, with some specific uh, arguments he's making. And that, that's on purpose. This would have been a common uh, trope that rabbis would have done. Uh, we do this now, right? I mean, right now, one of the biggest movies in America is A Little Mermaid. And, and when you go watch these remakes, what does everyone want? They want to know what, it, what did they keep the same and what did they change? And why did they change it, right? Is it all woke stuff? Is it be, you know, what, what, why the change? So Jesus um, keeps a lot of things. He changes a lot of things. And it is those differences, as we'll see, which are really the key to see what exactly is Jesus trying to tell. Uh, what is he trying to achieve with this story? Remember, Jesus' first audience are Jews. So it makes sense. He goes back to retell the story of the guy whom Israel was named after, Jacob. Um, so, again, you'll find this fascinating or, or, or you won't. Um, one thing I want us to do is, is there's three ways to do this. One, uh, where Jesus tells the same detail, right, where everything's identical. Uh, places where the part of the stories, if you compare them, are similar, and then, of course, when one is reverse of the other, okay? Uh, so let's start with parts of the story that are identical. You read over the Jacob story, you read the prodigal story, they're exactly the same, okay? Here's the first one, a father and two sons. Now, what I'm not saying is there aren't uh, supporting characters. There are. In both stories, supporting characters. Rebecca, Rachel, Leah, Laban, all supporting characters. None of them are main characters. 
Rachel and Leah serve the story of Jacob. Laban serves the story of Jacob, right? Rebecca serves the story of Isaac and, and, and Jacob. Um, so, and, and we saw a whole genealogy of Esau that are all there to, to serve the Esau story. Um, so you have a father and two sons with the Jacob story. You have the same thing in the prodigal son uh, story. Now, there are supporting characters. There's a pig farmer out yonder. There's the servants of the father, right? Uh, there, there are supporting uh, casts. But there are only three, story, uh, three characters to look at, and they're both the same. A father and two sons, an older son, an older brother, and a younger brother. Okay? They, they, they are essentially uh, the same. And I want you to notice this. Another identical thing is haste. There's an emphasis on speed. For example, in Genesis 27, as soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau's brother came in from his honey, right? This is the part where Jacob, of course, uh, puts, puts hairy arms on, you know. Uh, he, he wears his older brother's favorite uh, uh, cologne, and, and he, he goes in there. Um, the minute he gets the blessing, he's gone. And the story wants you to see that. He, he gets out of Dodge right before Esau shows up with the deer, okay? Um, and and so, so the writer wants to see that. Well, when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal, guess what the emphasis is? Uh, the, uh, I don't have the Luke references up there. Luke uh, 15, verse 13. Um, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had, took a journey to a far country, and there he squandered his property in reckless living. The idea is that he, he got the inheritance and as quickly as he could, turned it to cash, and he was gone. Same thing is, is once the deed was done against the father, in both instances, against the father, and we'll talk about that deed here in a minute. Once the deed is done, the emphasis is on you got to get out of Dodge. So it's the same story on, on, on both. They really are identical. Thirdly, um, Don, I bet there's a Nortonist tell us that, uh, hey, did you ever consider a chrome? Um, the return of the in this uh, Jacob and, and the prodigal. Um, remember that Jacob lived in exile for several decades. What's interesting is he attached himself to sheep and goats and, and, and that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Don. Um, eventually, however, he decided to return to his homeland, right? And there were uh, circumstances that, that led him to that. But he, he goes off and he becomes a farmer. Um, the real turning point in the Jacob narrative is the latter vision, right? Or the stairway to heaven, if you will. So in Genesis 28, then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go, will give me bread to eat and clothes to wear so that I will come again to my father's house in peace. The Lord shall be uh, my God. Notice he wants to return to his father's house. And this is the turning point of, of the return narrative. Well, guess what you get in the story of the prodigal? He runs off with haste and he becomes a farmer. Eventually, in his story, he, he doesn't want to do any work. He just wants to spend money. Um, but eventually, however, he has to go into work. We'll talk about it's not the same. Uh, he doesn't raise sheep and goats. It's pigs. And we'll, that'll come to the reverse part. But um, Luke 15, verse 17 to 19. When he, him, when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? Notice the reference to bread here in Genesis. 
I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. Where is he wanting to go? His father's house. So both, they, they wander off into the far country where the Gentiles are. And they have a moment, a crisis, uh, an experience that draws them to come back. And both of them want to return to their father's house. Here is, if you still think I'm making this up because I read a book that really just blew me away. Uh, Kenneth Bailey, if you want to know what it is. Um, it's a bit wonky, so I don't know if you'll like all of it, but it's, it's good. Um, there is a phrase... Uh, a series of words, a phrase uh, used in the Jacob story and the prodigal story that is found nowhere else in the Bible. And, it's, and when you see that, it is usually a way for the Bible to, to say, here, I'm trying to make an obvious point. Go back. So if I were to say, oops, I did it again, I'm sort of making a reference to Britney Spears' second album, Oops, I Did It Again, right? It's unmistakable the connection I'm making to, right? If I say something about the Force being with you, I'm obviously making a reference to Star Wars because no one else is really doing that without reference to Star Wars, okay? So you got a, you got a Britney Spears reference and a Star Wars reference. Here is um, the phrase is run, fall on the neck, and kiss. You remember the story of when Jacob is returning to Canaan. And the problem is, is he can't go one way because Laban, that's the way Laban's going to think he wins. He has to go around the other way. The problem with going around the other way takes him by Seir where Esau is. And he don't want to go by Esau because that's the other brother. That's the older brother that he's, he's, he's wounded, he's hurt and betrayed. But he goes anyways. And you remember, he, he sends all these gifts to him. He's trying to bribe him off. What does Esau do? Well, um, did I, I didn't put it up there. Genesis 33, 4. Esau ran to meet him and embraced him, fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. That was Esau's response. Well, look at Luke chapter 15, verse 20. The father returns. Here, it is not the brother who does this. This would be a difference. It's similar but different. But the language is, is identical. Chapter 15, verse 20. He arose, came to his father, while he was still a long way off. Remember that Jacob is over here, and it's Esau who comes to Jacob. Here in the prodigal story, it's the father who comes to the son. Because we naturally think the son is going to have to enter into it because it's honor shame culture. But in this story, the, the father comes over. And note the language. Um, while he's still a long way off, his father saw him, felt compassion, ran, embraced him. That is, you know, hugged his neck and kissed him. It's the same language. Jesus is clearly giving us a hyperlink back to the Jacob narrative. And so his first readers or listeners should, should register here, oh, this is the story of Jacob. And, and once you make that connection, you, you, Jesus is such a good storyteller. He doesn't just retell it. He makes things that are exactly the same, like we, we have these four points and we could do others. And then he's going to say, but I'm going to tweak a few things. It's not the older brother that runs after him. It's the father. Why is that so important? And I'm going to change some parts of the story uh, that will cause controversy on Twitter. But I have a really good reason for it. Okay? So, so those are the things that are exactly the same. It's very clear that when you read the story of Jacob, you have to make a connection to Jesus and the prodigal son. When you read the prodigal son narrative, Jesus wants you to go back to the prodigal uh, for the Jacob narrative. 
What about similar? Where, where do we see things that are, that are almost the same, but there's a, a small tweak? Here's one, death of the father. Now, in Genesis 27, 2, right, this is right when uh, Jacob's about to go uh, uh, deceive his father. Uh, Jacob says, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now, come to find out, he lives for like another 20 years or something. Because Jacob will go off to Padamaran, um, you know, spend 14 years working for two women, and then he'll work a few more years with the spotted speckled sheep, whatever it was. And then he comes back. Him and Esau together will bury Isaac. But the story begins with a reference to the death of the father. Now look at the prodigal son story. How does it begin? Son comes and says, Dad, I want my inheritance. Now, Middle Eastern culture and our culture, that's not any different. If you go up to your parents before they are dead and say, I want my half of the inheritance, you're saying, I cannot wait any longer for you to just die. Just go die already. It's grossly immoral. Grossly immoral. I mean, we, we have this, like, if you have a wealthy um, family member and everyone is talking about what their inheritance is while they're still living, shameful behavior, shameful behavior. But you can see that they're not the same scenario, but they're very similar to, to each, each other. Uh, but in both stories, the narrative opens with a reference to the death of the father. Okay? Uh, secondly, it is the younger brother, the younger son, who breaks fellowship with the father. Jacob is the younger of the twin boys. And in the prodigal, he's the younger of the two boys. Um, and now the difference here, however, is that Jacob does it through deception. And there's little hint that he ever tried to reconcile with his father. We, we don't have that narrative. In fact, uh, there's several retellings of the Jacob story in Jewish literature. I think it's the book of Jubilees. They, 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 try, to, they try to reconcile father and son because it, it, it really is an omission. Jacob gets back and is, he like doesn't call his dad. Hey, by the way, I'm in town. Do you think we should go, go have coffee? In, in the biblical story, that's never addressed. Um, so later Jewish writers, they, they try to soften that a little bit. Um, this is all we get about Jacob and his father. Jacob came to his father, Isaac and Mamre, um, Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac had sojourned. That's it. That's about it. Later he'll bury him. That is it. There is no hint of reconciliation. But Jacob broke fellowship with his father through deception. The prodigal breaks fellowship through a scandalous request. We don't have time for all of this, but if you want to understand the prodigal story, you have to understand it through the lens of shame and honor and that sort of culture. We're becoming one of those. Um, but so like now, if you, if you post something on Facebook 20 years ago, uh, which Facebook would around, if you did it 10 years ago, um, that is now politically incorrect, your career is ruined. That is shame on our culture, and we're becoming that. But when Jesus is telling the story, that is exactly what they have. So when the younger son makes this request, that is a shameful request that brings shame upon the whole family. We expect the father to defend his honor. And so, and so what is even more shameful than the boy's request is the father's refusal to really just almost abuse his son. Like he... We expect the father to slap him across the face and almost disown him. I mean, it's a really shameful thing to, to request. Um, regardless, um, um, they both leave without any intention of returning. Jacob assumes, I can never come back. Uh, his, his father will disown him. Esau will kill him. 
Uh, he has no intention of returning, which is why the, the, the stairway to heaven story is so important. It's God saying, you will return to this land. And he holds fast to that promise. The prodigal son leaves with no intention to return. He returns because he has to, because he doesn't want to starve to death. Notice thirdly, uh, similar, the identity of the two sons. In the Jacob narrative, the two brothers represents two clans who will clash for centuries, right? So you can read them. This is typical of ancient Near Eastern culture. You can read them as individuals, and they are, Jacob and Esau. They also embody two nations. And that's what we saw in chapter 36 with the genealogy of Esau. Remember that what that did was it told the story of the Edomites for centuries so that later um, uh, Israelites, they see their story, but they also see that this is a constant clash between two nations. And so what you could do is interpret the Jacob Esau story at microcosm as a broader narrative of Jew versus Gentile. Okay. Uh, because remember that Esau's genealogy is he went off and did what Jacob was told not to do. He intermarried with the Canaanites, and then they took over the Horites. And so what you have is godless Gentile paganism. And who is there to, be, to pester them forever and ever? It's the Edomites to pester the Israelites. You get a whole book of the Bible, Obadiah. I know you haven't read it either. Um, that is all about God judging the Edomites. They're, they're cousins, but they didn't come to Israel's aid. Instead, they've just been a pest. And so, so you have these, these two brothers who, who their identity is bigger than, than, than who they are in, in general. What some have tried to do in the prodigal story is something similar. Uh, some will say they also represent the Jew and the Gentile. There's a problem with that. If the prodigal son represents the Gentiles, we would expect him not to return to the father, who's a picture of Israel, but rather stay with the pig farmer. But in fact, he, he leaves the land of the Gentiles. He goes into the land of the Gentiles, like Jacob did, by the way, but he returns home. So I don't think that works. Rather, we know exactly who these two boys represent. Luke 15, verses 1 and 2. Jesus tells us, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. In verse 2, the Pharisees and scribes grumbled. Notice the parallelism. Tax collectors, sinners represent one group. Two names, one group. Pharisees and scribes, two names represent one group. It's really well-written, poetic parallelism. Tax collectors, sinners are the bad people. The Pharisees and scribes are supposed to be the good people. That's the way religion sees everything, black and white. Jesus tells a story where the two sons embody an entire group of people. The younger son represents the tax collectors and sinners. The older brother represents the Pharisees, which is why when you get to the end of the story, it's missing a chunk. You, you can divide the story into three sections, the, the parable, right? And I've, I've done this every time I do prodigal, I, I, I do this, and I've already shared it a little bit. And, 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 and we... And, if you take it as columns, column one and column two are the same length. Right? He, uh, the, the prodigal leaves, the prodigal returns. Those are the same length. This is typical of ancient Near Eastern storytelling. Okay? The third column, which is the story of the older brother, it's missing a section. It's too short. And so it ends without an ending. There's no conclusion. It ends with a question. Should we not celebrate? He, he, was, he was dead and he's alive. It just ends. 
And that's why I think MacArthur's right in saying that we know how the story ends because the older brother represents the Pharisees and the scribes who will crucify Jesus. And the reason is because they cannot accept the lavish love of God in Christ. And the only response they see fitting, because that sort of love is an insult and a threat to their religious power, is to get rid of him. You remember that the younger son wanted dad dead and just came out and said it. The older son wants the same thing. He thinks that if he does duty, he'll get his inheritance and won't put up with dad anymore. What you find in the end is actually it's the son of duty who ends up committing the murder. So, so it's similar, right? They, they, they represent different things, but you can see what Jesus is doing with the two brothers and the prodigal, very similar to what Moses is doing with Jacob and Esau. It's, diff- it's, it's similar, not the same, but it is, is similar. Um, uh, okay. Uh, fourthly, I think it's up here, betrayal. In both stories... Both fathers are betrayed, but only one of them is deceived. Uh, Jacob is deceived by both his wife and his son. His weaknesses are used against him, right? He's blind and all that. In the prodigal narrative, the father is well aware of what is happening. The father isn't ignorant. He knows what the request means. But what he does is he accepts the betrayal. That's really the scandalous part of the story. It's scandalous the request is made. It's more scandalous that he went with the, the request. Pretty incredible. Um, um, and we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this uh, when we do our application. Estrangement, fifthly. In both narratives, the brothers are estranged. Even though a truce is agreed to between Jacob and Esau, Jacob refuses to hang out with them. The only time they're seen together again is when they bury dad. And then they go to separate ways. You remember that uh, Jacob doesn't want to go to Seir where Esau is. Later, Esau goes farther east. He's going away from Eden. So, so, so there, there's estrangement between the brothers. What is the prodigal son story? It's the same thing. So long as the younger brother is brought into the house, the older brother will stay on the outside. They actually switch. The older brother is on the inside while the younger brother is among the Gentiles. When the young brother comes in, older brother is outside. He's out in the field. Um, they are estranged from each other. right? So it's not the same, but it, it is... It is uh, very similar. What's interesting is in both narratives, uh, we would expect that where there's conflict between the patriarch and his son, the oldest son would serve as a mediator. In neither story does the older brother serve in that way. So this, this sticks out. If you're a Middle Eastern reader of the first century or whatever, this would stick out to you. Maybe not to us, but it would, would to them. So clearly Jesus wants us to see these, these connections. Okay, if you're not lost yet, last, last part, okay? We're going somewhere with this. Reversal. Where does Jesus go the opposite direction? Right. Um, the first is the Father's tender love. And the large part thanks to Jesus, when we speak of Father, um, that term has transformed from being a uh, tribal chief to a metaphor used to describe God. Now, God is called Father in the Old Testament. It's not a prominent term, but it is used. There's even feminine language used used of God. Um, But when Jesus comes, his favorite term for God is Father. Think about about what he says. He he says not just, my Father, etc. He'll also say, our Father who are in heaven. Our Father. So so if, if you're in the first century Rome, 
father, particularly in the Old Testament, becomes a tribal chief term. Because Abraham is a patriarch. Isaac becomes a patriarch. He, you have a tribe underneath him. Remember, Esau and Jacob had armies ready to go at it. Abraham had an army that he used against people to rescue Lot. Right? I mean, I mean, these guys are tribal chieftains. They are the father. They're patriarchs. Jesus takes the term father, and he, 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 he takes it from the Old Testament, but he, he turns the word as a metaphor for God. This is important because what we usually do is we, we define God by our fathers. And this is why people with daddy issues really struggle with our father who are in heaven. Because that's not a compliment. My dad abandoned me. My dad abused me. My dad left us. My dad, whatever it might be, he was a drunk. You know? But what Jesus requires us to do is the opposite. We, we understand fatherhood through the lens of God the Father. It's a big, big difference. Okay? And this is perhaps the climax of that theology. The father of the prodigal son story becomes the image of God the Father. Now, it's personified in Jesus, right? But it's ultimately a picture of, of God the Father, because that language is, is used. Um, so uh, this term then becomes a term of strength, compassion, and honor. Right? And, and this guy embodies all of them. Um, the Father grants an, un, uh, an unprecedented request for his son, he welcomes his son by running toward him. Um, we would expect, uh, uh, I may be skipping here. We, uh, yeah, yeah, so we'll come back to it. We wouldn't expect the father to make that run outside the village. The father we would expect to stay inside the home because of honor. You come to me, sort of thing. Um, but the father goes to the sinner. He goes to the shameful son. Um, and he endures the, the humiliation of the village, right? One of the reasons why the father doesn't go to the son out in the village is because in a shame-honor culture, the son has to go through the shame of the village before he sees the father. This is part of his penance. But when the father runs out to the son, he takes upon himself the shame of the culture, so instead of saying, who do you think you are returning home? You're a terrible person. You should stay with those filthy Gentiles. The accusation becomes with, what sort of man are you? You've brought shame upon our culture. You should go with the Gentiles and live with them like your younger son. He takes that burden upon himself. And he appeals to joy over judgment when uh, he's talking to his older son. Right? Isn't that what he says? So the older son comes out and he says, Dad, you should kick him out. And the father says, Look, what else do you want me to do? Judge him? He's come home. He's alive. They would have had a funeral for him when he left. He's alive. Shouldn't we rejoice that he was gone and now he's here? He was lost, he's found, dead and alive. He appeals the joy over judgments. And that is one of the main themes of these three parables, right? I, I trust you're familiar with them, so I, I, I don't want to do all the reading. You remember that Jesus, in verses 1 and 2, is eating with tax collection sinners, which usually, I don't know about you, but when you eat with someone, it's not a somber occasion. Right? If you eat by yourself, that can be a somber occasion. If, if it's, so, so my wife and I, Monday, we went to a cheesecake factory, not to brag, have some gift cards, and, and uh, um, 
we ate, well, we weren't crying the whole time there. We were celebrating. Hey, we got rid of the kids, right? I mean, it was just a great occasion. So the context of feasting is joy. And what are the three parables? Well, there was a shepherd who lost a sheep. He gets his sheep, comes back. What does the shepherd do? He rejoices. A woman loses a coin. She panics, bites her friends over. They find the coin. What do they do? They rejoice. A father has a son whose son runs off and is lost. He comes home. What does the father do? He rejoices. This father prefers joy over judgments. And this is the climactic image we have of God the Father. This is significantly different than what we get from Isaac. The minute Isaac is deceived, he fades from the narrative. When in the prodigal story, the father takes central uh, uh, casting. He, he is the main point of the story. right? And this becomes Jesus' way of saying, not just God is a father, but he's saying God is this father. And, and by having the two categories, not of Jew and Gentile, but of tax collector, sinner on the one hand, Pharisees and scribe on the other, he's saying he is this kind of father to you because you're one of these brothers. And so there's good news in that for you because the way the father treats the younger brother is the way he'll treat the older brother. The younger brother receives the overabundant love of the father and its grace. The older brother doesn't, right? which we see ultimately in, in Jesus. Um, hang out there in Luke 15. Turn quickly to Hosea 11. I should have already told you to do this. Hosea 11. This is the closest we get to um, this sort of fatherly, like deep fatherly language in the Old Testament. It's fantastic. Remember, Hosea is writing to tell people to, re- to repent, Israel to, to return, Hosea 6, return. Remember, Hosea is the guy whose wife is a harlot, right? And he named his two boys, not my people, right? I don't recommend that uh, for your kids or grandkids. Hosea 11, I don't know how far we'll, we'll read. When Israel was a child, I loved him. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 will quote that verse regarding Jesus and the nativity. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to Baals and burnt offerings to idols. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. That's the northern tribes. I took uh, up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bonds of, uh, bands of love. And I became to them as one who eases the yoke of their jaws. And I bent down to them and fed them. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king, because they have refused to return to me. The sword shall rage against their cities, consume the bars of their gates, devour them because of their counsels. My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not uh, again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come to wrath. They shall go after the Lord. He will not roar like a lion. When he roars, his children shall come trembling from the west. They shall come trembling like birds from Egypt, like doves from the land of Assyria. And I will return them to their homes, declares the Lord. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies, the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God, is faithful to the Holy One. Right? So we'll just stop there. Right? You see the parallels? God is, God, God is, as father, pleading for his prodigal to come home. He chooses joy over judgment. 
I could roar like a lion. I could destroy them. But how can I do that? How can I do that? You see, Jesus, what he's doing here is is he's saying, yes, I'm retelling the story of Jacob, but don't think this father is that father. This father is God the Father. Now, it's going to be embodied in Jesus, in, in the narrative, right? Because they're mad at Jesus. But, but he's, he's given us this picture. It's a beautiful image of God the Father. I mean, now that you see it, you'll never unsee it. It's a beautiful image of, of God the Father. With that said, um, the presence of a mother. Now, in the Jacob story, there is a mother, Rebecca, and she works with the older brother to deceive Jacob, or Isaac, right? In, in the prodigal story, there's no mother. There's no mother. She, she's never mentioned, right? She's absent. However, the role of a mother is there. Um, the father embodies both roles. Now, I am not turning woke here. If we had time, maybe we could spend a whole week on this. If we had time, we can show that there are feminine images that God that applies to God. Jesus does this. How I wish, O Israel, O Jerusalem, you were under my wings like a mother hen. What Jesus is not saying is, I identify as a woman, treat me as such. My, my pronouns are they, them, ze, zer, self. That's not what he's saying. He's borrowing, he's using a metaphor, borrowing images, because God isn't engendered, right? Although he does identify as masculine, he's not engendered, okay? So what we see here is the father takes on certain expected roles of the mother, but it's embodied in himself. Let me give you a few examples. One, when the son returns, as we said, we expect the father to stay in the house. Instead, the father does the role of a mother. She runs, uh, she, we expect her to go run to her, to her boy, Right? Think it, every mother throughout history would have done that and could not care less about what culture thought of them. That's my boy. That's my baby boy. Right? That, what would have been, been expected? Moms are always going to take their kids' side. Right? That's just the way it is. My wife and another mother in this church right now are hugging uh, their kids at youth camp. The dads did not go. <laughs> right? <laughs> you know? That's, that's to be expected. Right? Ah, I'd be fine. It's just five days. Wish it were longer. Not for moms, right? Not for moms. The father, however, embodies that. The same is true with the older brother. The older brother refusing to come in would have been an act of disrespect. What would we expect? Mom to go out and plead. Plead. Just, just come on in. This means a lot to your father. Don't, don't, make, it, don't make a big scene of this. Just, just come in. Welcome him home. We can talk about this later, right? You can hear mom doing that. But instead, it's the father doing this. It's a real reversal. Um, And Jesus is telling us something about the grace of God. At times, God can be harsh. At times, he can be gentle. And grace determines that. Grace really does. Uh, Fifthly, gifts. We've got to move. Um, Jacob returns and showers Esau with gifts in an effort to appease him. What does the, broad, the prodigal bring home? Zero zilch nada. My daughter loves that phrase now. She saw a, a, one of our billboards with that phrase. Um, nothing. In fact, that's the whole point. He's feeding pigs. Jacob had something to show of himself. I saw a good clip of Tim Keller put it on Twitter today. 
Christianity is unique in that your identity is something you receive, not something you achieve. That transition is made here. Jacob comes home with something he has achieved. I went off, I got all these kids, I got wives, I got mistresses, I got power, I got influence, I got wealth, so much so I can just lavish Esau with goodies. He's achieved something. What about the prodigal? Dad, I'm unworthy to be called one of your sons. Make me a slave. All right, isn't that beautiful? What does that tell us about grace? All right. Um, oh, by the way, here's here's really, really fascinating thing. I would have never have noticed this had I not read about it, okay? This is why you read smart people, and people will think you're smart. Okay, in the Jacob story, how does Esau deceive his dad? Well, he, uh, he puts on fur. Um, you know, maybe... I tried to grow a beard. That didn't work out too much. So he had to uh, get a Daniel Boone raccoon hat or something. I don't know. Um, maybe put on his brother's favorite cologne. I, I don't know what he did. One of the things he did was he put on his brother's best robe. Uh, Genesis 25. Then Rebecca took the best garment, the best robe of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. Okay? This is a detail I never noticed. Because we always think about the hairy arms. Right? And you don't have to worry about the red hair because Isaac's going blind. But the hairy arms, that makes sense. You remember that like Isaac knows something is up, but every test Jacob passes. And this is one of the tests, the best rope. Jake, Jacob puts it on. There is no one else in the, in the Bible that does this. That someone places the best robe on them. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, Joseph gets called in many colors. That's not the same scenario. Later, Joseph is, uh, uh, is robed by Pharaoh, similar, but it's not the same. Okay? But that's the closest you're going to get in the Bible uh, that is like this, except in the story of the prodigal son. In the Jacob story, he wears Esau's robes in order to deceive his father. In the prodigal story, look at chapter 15, verse 22. Notice the difference. And this is after he makes his confession. I'm unworthy to be called when your sons make me your slave. Verse 22. The father said to his servants, whom the son thinks now he is one of them, bring quickly the best robe. It's the same language. Put it on him, put a ring on his hand. You see it? What's the difference? In the Jacob story, the robe was used to deceive. It was, it was the means of the sin, of, 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 of the running away. Here in the prodigal story, it is the means, it is the sign, the symbol of grace and adoption. This is the robe that the son would wear. The servants wouldn't wear a robe like this. Jesus purposely flipped it in the narrative. That's why in the Jacob story, it's in verse 15. In the uh, prodigal story, it's near the end at least of the prodigal story part, before you get the older brother. All that is on purpose. One last thing, the hero. Who is the hero of the Jacob story? It's Jacob. He's the protagonist. There's a problem with that. Not a very good guy. Not a good guy at all. I mean, he's kind of a scoundrel, ain't he? I mean, look, look how he treats everybody. He's the hero. There's a series of books. Um, um, I've, I've, read, I've read half of them at least twice each. They're a good series. But... Uh, several years ago, right, right as we came to Frankfurt, I decided I was going to read more fiction. 
And then uh, by the time I got to Frankfurt, I wanted to read more popular fiction, right? And I've not here lately not done as good as I could. Um, and so I've read like my first Stephen King novel, for example. Everyone else is reading it. I want to read it. And, it, and, and fiction is a, a really good way to understand man, right? To understand your, your culture that, you know, it's, it's really, uh, was it Lewis said a man who reads uh, lives uh, multiple lifetimes, something like that. I think there's some truth to that. There's a series I really like. Um, it is pagan, just pagan. And that's what, one of the things I found so fascinating about it. I, I got to like the third book and I thought, you know, I don't really like any of these people. They're all like bad. And that's when it clicked. That's the worldview. Because you got two main heroes in the story. One of them's a scoundrel womanizer. He's not a good guy. Hard worker, right? A lot of things fall in his lap. Good. The other one has a messed up childhood and is still dealing with it in a bad way. These are your heroes. And we expect at some point for them to overcome those challenges, like not despite them, but to heal from them. They never do. They're always bad. Now, they do heroic things. They take down the government and all this sort of stuff. One's a journalist, for example. Um, but they're always bad. Always bad. That's when it hit me. That's kind of the point. Jacob is that sort of character. Now, so Jacob is the younger brother, right? But in the prodigal son, who's the hero? It's not the younger brother. It's the father. The one who was wounded, the one that was wronged, becomes the hero of the story. Okay, so what does any of this have to do with the price of bread in China? Okay, I hope you're not lost, and I hope this has been insightful. With all of that said, I think there's two things we can see about the gospel with greater depth. The first, I think I have them up here. No, sin. Sin. What is sin according to Jesus, right? You, you've got the Jacob narrative in the background. You've got his story with the problem. What is sin to Jesus? Two things. One, it is a dishonorable act against one who is honorable. Okay? So what does Jacob do? He deceives his father. And then that gets turned into a dishonorable request that is scandalous. So, so sin begins with that. Now, this is illustrated in, in the two narratives. Jacob goes and he's, he, he, he works with uh, sheep and goats, honorable animals, right? In, in Israel, you can eat those. You, you can raise them. There's nothing wrong with that. Where does the prodigal go? He chooses the dishonorable thing in, in, in um, deceiving his father, and then he goes to raise pigs, Sin is attached to dishonor, shame, guilt. So, so notice what Jesus did. Sin is deeper than a whoopsie-daisy. That's the way we usually picture it. Uh, there's, a, there's an issue in one of our state capitals. It's not Kentucky. We don't have time. It, it's a, we were talking about Sunday morning. It's kind of a funny story. The legislator was, had to go before the ethics committee. Okay? What they did was really just crazy, frankly. Their apology was, I'm sorry you were offended. That's the way we think of sin. Yeah, you know, sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong, who's to say? Jesus comes and says, no, 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 it's much more serious than that. It's a dishonorable act against one who's worthy of honor. It's a sin against the Father, and you will go in the direction of dishonor, deeper and deeper dishonor. Notice also... Um, uh, oh, that it's dishonorable not just against God, but against ourselves. 
The request is a sin against the father. His actions where he lands in the pig farm, that is dishonorable upon himself. He reeks of pigs when he gets home. Second thing he says about sin is it's more than a violation of law. It's it's, it's, It's the breaking of a relationship. This is something that I wish people could see. In America, it's all about the individual, the self. Don't tell me what to do. I'll do what I want. All, you know, all that sort of stuff. All around them are bodies of broken relationships. And then when people are at the rock bottom, they wonder why they're alone. Their sin made them that way. Sin always pushes people away because sin at its core is the breaking of a relationship, first vertically and then horizontally. Look at the story of David and Bathsheba. What is his, his, his song? I've sinned against God. Well, Uriah is buried somewhere, and Bathsheba has a new husband and a, and a child that she was not expecting. It's both. It's both. And, and by telling the Jacob story where there's just a wreckage of life around him, he brings it then into the prodigal story, and Jesus is shouting, this is what sin is, and this is what sin does. If you choose righteousness, you will have around you people who love you and you love them and it is beautiful. You choose sin and you choose loneliness and isolation. This is, this, this is I mean, it's, once you see it, it's just so obvious, but it, take, it takes the story to really, really see it. All right, second thing, sin, redemption. What did Jesus say about redemption? Redemption is the story of exile and return. In both the Jacob story and the prodigal story, Jacob is not a good person. He goes into exile, right? He embodies the story of Israel as Israel. He goes into exile only to return. What, is, what happens to Israel? They will go into exile, right? The Egyptian exodus, only to return to the promised land. What will happen to Israel with the Assyrians and the Babylonians and, and, and the Philistines and everyone else? They will go into exile. They will return. What is salvation? Sin makes us exiles. Grace makes us return. This is the story. It isn't that God has moved. It's that we have moved away. We've gone east of Eden. This is the story of the Bible. Here we are with the Father. Uh, There's that word again we take for granted. Then we sin. We go east of Eden into the wilderness. What is is redemption? He brings us right back to return in his presence. That's the good news of it. And notice this. That is only possible because our Redeemer is a loving Father. Our Redeemer is a loving Father. Even if you are like the younger brother, who, like Jacob, ran away, took the money and left, God, the loving Father, won't wait for you to knock on his door. He'll meet you the minute you're over the horizon. Even if you are a self-righteous religious hypocrite, and in your bitter malice, you will not come in to celebrate grace. Yet, this gracious, loving, tender Father will come out even to you because you've been exiled because of your sin. He will draw us to return. That's redemption. Redemption is not an apology that you'll do better. It is the return to a loving Father who never stopped loving you. Okay, let me throw up a Bible, uh, three verses, we'll call a night. Um, hope this is worth it. Isaiah 57. I like to go deeper on Wednesday night, so if you like deeper, welcome. If you don't, 
Well, best of luck to you. Isaiah 57. Because, tell me if this sounds familiar. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry. He went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners. Creating the fruit of the lips, peace, peace, shalom, to the far and to the near, says the Lord. I will heal him. Now, you know that sound familiar? Jesus is borrowing, I believe, and he's retelling the story of Jacob. I also think he's standing along the line of the prophets. Look at that last verse again. Peace, peace to two people, the one who is far, the one that is near, and he will heal them. What's the story of the prodigal? What's the story of Jacob? I was mentioning Lonnie earlier that uh, I just uh, read a uh, book up to the tutors of English history. I'm an Anglophile, I confess, don't judge me. I'm grateful for the Revolutionary War. but I still, still found them fascinating. Uh, there's an interesting detail about the early kings. Um, I think it's one of the Edwards. I could be wrong. One of the ways he consolidated power was he claimed that he had a divine right to the throne, and with that divine right came the power to heal. I did a little bit of studying. If you read Tolkien, there's an interesting detail about Aragorn. This is in the movie, but it's in the extended movie. So... If you and Kent only watched the theatrical, you didn't see this. So, did you do the extended, Dino? We watched whatever you gave us. Oh, you watched the extended. Okay, so you may remember this. Okay. So, Tolkien didn't intend this, but it worked out really well for him. That Tolkien has a prophet, priest, and king in the middle of it. So, Frodo would be the priest. My, you're already bored. Pro, uh, Gandalf would be the prophet, comes and speaks. Aragorn is the returning king, right? After the great battle at the Black Gate, okay, this is the very end. Uh, Tolkien just kept writing, right? He should have just ended the story. Uh, but, but, but if you keep reading, what he does is quite beautiful. Aragorn goes around, he starts healing soldiers. And he ends up healing Arwen, who is the one that gets the witch king. You don't care. Um, the ancient world associated kings with healing. What does Jesus come and do? Read Matthew. He's the king. The wise men are looking for a king. He comes, he has the authority of a king, Sermon on the Mount. What does the king do? He goes and he heals. What's the prophet saying? He'll go and he'll heal like a good king, or in the prodigal story, like a good father. He will bring peace to those who are far away, to those who are near. That's the hope of the gospel. Took us a long time to get there, but there it is. Okay, Danny, did I miss anything? He's not here. All right. Danny's probably tired from that baseball game. Boy, that was-